Um, I want to invite you all to go ahead and open your Bibles with me to the Gospel according to Luke. Uh, We're in chapter 9 and we're finishing up what we started last week. We're going to read from verse 37 and end with verse 45 today. So Luke chapter 9, beginning in verse 37. Uh, We sort of just kind of scratched the surface in our understanding of the underlying issue with the disciples last week when we saw saw how they had this inability to cast out a demon. And so from verse 37, we're going to start reading just to refresh our memory a little bit about this account. And we may be looking at Matthew and Mark's account. You might uh, keep your ribbon marker if you have one of those uh, handy because Luke's description is by far the most brief of the three accounts of the synoptic gospels. Uh, Matthew's description of these events comprise of uh, 13 verses. Mark's is the longest by far, comprising of 19 verses, where Luke relays this information to us in just nine verses. So if you have your markers or a finger or paper, well, you might want to keep it handy to flip back and forth. But when we left off last week, we began to talk a little bit about the word faith and the disciples' lack of it cast in when they cast out the demons. So we're going to pick up from there this morning. So let's read our text just to refamiliarize ourselves with it, starting in verse 37 of Luke chapter 9 and see what God's Word has to say to us today. I want to invite you, if you're able to do so, to stand with me for the reading of God's Word. Luke chapter 9, starting in verse 37. God's Word says this, On the next day, when they came down from the mountain, a large crowd met him. And a man from the crowd shouted, saying, Teacher, I beg you to look at my son, for he is my only boy. And a spirit seizes him, and he suddenly screams, and it throws him into a convulsion with foaming at the mouth. And only with difficulty does it leave him, mauling him as it leaves. I begged your disciples to cast it out, and they could not. Verse 41 says, And Jesus answered and said, You unbelieving and perverted generation, how long shall I be with you and put up with you? Bring your son here. And while he was still approaching, the demon slammed him to the ground and threw him into a convulsion. But Jesus rebuked the unclean spirit and healed the boy and gave him back to his father. And they were all amazed at the greatness of God. But while everyone was marveling at all that he was doing, he said to his disciples, Let these words sink into your ears, for the Son of Man is going to be delivered into the hands of men. But they did not understand this statement, and it was concealed from them so that they would not perceive it. And they were afraid to ask him about this statement. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you uh, that we can look back at recorded history to see uh, everything that you taught and you said uh, in, in partiality, Lord. If we recorded everything that you said and did, the, the entire libraries of the world would not be able to contain it. But you have given us enough through your word that we might know you and learn about you and grow in you. It is sufficient and it is sustaining to our souls. So, Lord, help us to uh, cast aside the things of this world that so easily ensnare our minds and help us to focus this time on you and your word. We thank you for it. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. You may be seated. 
Well, as I mentioned last week, we, uh, we began to look at uh, this stark contrast from this mountaintop transfiguration of Jesus Christ and how he gave Peter, John, and James, he gave them a little glimpse of his majestic glory and how he displayed himself in a gleaming, bright, holy array to the gloomy, dark, sad situation that loomed on the plain below. And we've said that we've started to see this kind of ebb and flow, this progression and regression on the part of the disciples. One moment they seem to understand, and the next moment it's misunderstanding. On another moment they seem to be faithful, and then in the next moment they seem to be faltering. And so as Jesus, Peter, John, and James come down from the mountain into the plain below, they come to a chaotic scene. And we noted that you could almost picture a similarity scene in Exodus 32 when Moses descended Mount Sinai after receiving the law. He comes down, there's just chaos and disheaval going on. It's pandemonium. The scribes are down there and they're arguing with the disciples. The crowds are rushing and running up to Jesus. And then to make it all worse, we saw how this was this, there was a sad, desperate father there who was bringing his demon-possessed son to be healed by the disciples. And the picture of the son we saw was absolutely pathetic. It was reminiscent of the Gerasene demoniac who lived amongst the tombs, right? And he frequently broke his chains back in chapter 8. This boy, he foams at the mouth, he grinds his teeth, and sometimes he even throws himself into fire or he'll run into the water. He's covered in scars. He can't hear. He can't speak. And it says in verse 39 of our text that when the spirit leaves the boy, it mauls him. Or the literal translation of that is it absolutely crushes him. So it's really a sad, pathetic situation. The demon is absolutely relentless in trying to physically harm and destroy this father's only son. And so as Jesus comes down from the mountainside, he's, he's confronted by this desperate dad who comes to him and he begs Jesus for help. But verse 40 is where our text today gets a little interesting, to say the least, when the father says that I begged your disciples to cast it out and they could not. Now, that seems to shock us a little bit when we read that in terms of our understanding of where these disciples are at. That statement seems to cause us to take a step back and reevaluate our understanding of these disciples and who they are, because we just saw Jesus commission them earlier in chapter 9 to go and preach and perform healings, and he gave them power and authority over the demons, and yet for some reason, here they are. They can't, they can't help this boy. They're unable to do it. It's not like they didn't have any prior experience in dealing with the demons. It's not like they were using the wrong techniques. But the problem was that they lacked faith or belief, or in a word that might make more sense to us without being abused and open to misinterpretation. The problem is, is that they lacked trust. Because Jesus levels a pretty heavy rebuke on them in verse 41 when he says, You unbelieving and perverted generation, how long shall I be with you and put up with you? Bring your son here. Now we know from Matthew chapter 7, the cor- or Matthew 17 rather, the corollary account to this, that the disciples came to Jesus privately after this incident and they asked, why? Why could we not drive this demon out? And he responds to them and he says, because of the littleness of your faith. 
Now, this is kind of where we left off last week in order to try to understand the basics of faith, because this is absolutely where the rubber meets the road. We need to make sure that we here in the 21st century understand exactly what Jesus was talking about when he tells them that it was because of the littleness of their faith. Because within Christendom, there is a whole lot of misunderstanding as to what it means to be a person of faith in Christ. If you've been a Christian for some time, or you've had uh, some sort of illness come about, or maybe you've had a loved one uh, who uh, got ill to the point of death, you probably had someone come up to you and tell you that you just need to have faith, right? That is, that if you just use your spiritual muscles of faith and you just work them in the right way, that sickness will go away or your loved one will be healed. We've had it with our daughters, you know? And what they're saying to you is basically that it, you don't have to be sick, you don't have to be miserable. That suffering that you're experiencing is only because it is, it is only going to be exasperated and prolonged because you don't have enough faith to make it go away. This is the popular mantra on TBN. And coincidentally, the people that perpetuate this set of false beliefs are called faith healers, right? But in reality, these people are just like Johann Tetzel that we talked about when he went to Germany, and you remember his little saying, every coin in the coffer that rings, a soul from Purgatory Springs, right? Give me a little cash, I'm going to get your loved one out of Purgatory, right? They, they, TBN, they do the same thing. They tell you, you sow your seed of faith money, and you pray this prayer in faith, and God's going to bless you with money, God's going to heal you, God's going to take away your enemies and all your ailments and all that, but you have to activate it by faith. They're no different. Perhaps you've had another time when you've been discussing faith is when uh, you may have been in a debate with somebody on the internet or in a conversation or what have you. And they say, well, you know what? You have faith, but I have science, right? In other words, when someone's saying something like that, what they're really saying to you is that your faith is grounded in irrationality. You're believing in something despite all the facts of science. You have nothing concrete upon which to base your faith in Christ. You shouldn't believe in that great, big, angry sky god thing, right? You should just believe in science. Science is what you can trust in, and science is what you can believe in. But here's the facts, folks. Science can't prove the Big Bang, which is really the atheist version of the virgin birth. Science can't prove evolution. Science deals specifically with what can be tested, observed, and reproduced by experimentation. The origin of life on this planet is never going to be demonstrated or reproduced in a laboratory, no matter how much protein you have and amino acids and time and electricity and all those things that they tell you we've got to have to get life to come about. And you know what they do? They say there's a... This is a little rabbit trail. Abiogenesis, right? Life comes from non-life. They say, well, okay, we know that that's not true, so where did life begin on Earth? You know what some science, scientists are now starting to say? Some atheists are still now trying to say? It was transported by space aliens to Earth, and that's how it got started, right? Science will never, ever give you any true knowledge as to our origins or how we got here. It's all a matter of speculation, 
So for the naturalist or the atheist, believing in the Big Bang and evolution is a leap of faith for them. That's blind acceptance of something they can't prove. That's blind faith. But what is biblical faith? What is the faith that the Bible talks about? What in the world is Jesus talking to and what talking about with his disciples here when he rebuked them about their little faith? Well, in its most simplistic form, faith is the confidence in what God has said simply because he said it. Biblical faith is believing in a, in a God who is and believing what he has said because the Bible declares it to be true. That's why here at this church we want to have a high view of Scripture, not because we worship the Bible. The Bible is not the object of our faith, but because we worship God as he has revealed himself to us through his word. Jesus is the object of our faith. Scripture is the conduit, if you will. But the Reformers have broken down faith into three major components, and I'm going to give you two of them, two of them in, in Latin, because Latin was the language of scholasticism and the church from about AD 250 all the way up until the, about the 18th century. But the Reformers said that faith was composed of three elements. The first one is notitia. Notitia, that's N-O-T-I-T-I-A, notitia. And notitia is simply knowledge or the content. It's the intellectual understanding of Jesus' life, death, and resurrection. You could say it's the information. Wayne Grudem breaks this down into layman's terms for us when he says that this is simply a knowledge of the facts of the gospel. You may have heard some people say that it doesn't matter what you believe in as long as you're sincere, right? But that's not what the Bible teaches. The Bible doesn't teach that you can believe in Baal. The Bible doesn't teach that you can believe in Santa Claus. The Bible doesn't tell us that you can believe in whatever you want because it tells us that we are to believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. And so it's, first of all, important for you to know two things about this knowledge or this notitia. And that is, number one, our faith is not a contentless faith. Your faith is not based on some blind ignorance and that as you continue walking in your Christian life that you become more and more ignorant of the truths of God. But your Christian life should be one of increasing in greater and greater depths of your understanding of who God is and what he has done. You're not to be staying on the bottle and drinking formula and having your diapers changed for you all the time as you read Scripture. You should be able to handle the meat of God's truth as they are revealed in Scripture. You don't just throw your bucket down into the well of the knowledge of God and you take this little sip of water to sustain you for the rest of your life. But you send that bucket down to that well again and again and again to quench the continual thirst of your soul. That's what 2 Peter 3.18 exhorts us, that we are to grow in both grace and what? Knowledge, right? We're supposed to grow in the grace and knowledge of the Lord Jesus Christ. There should be this forward progression or this increase in your knowledge of who Jesus Christ is. And knowledge isn't so that you can be the smartest guy in the room. Knowledge isn't meant for you to puff up yourself, but knowledge is meant for you, for your encouragement of the saints and the building up of the body of Christ. 
The second thing that you need to know about knowledge or notitia is that knowledge alone will not save you. Knowledge of the facts of the gospel is not enough. Satan could get an A in theology, right? And we know what his destiny is. There's no salvation for Satan, right? But he could get an A in theology. So knowledge alone will not save you. But to know who Jesus is and was and what he did is not enough to have faith. And we could cite several examples of unbelieving professors at secular universities all over the world that teach religion, right? Religious studies and those sorts of things. But that knowledge alone is not going to save you. Having the right answers to biblical trivia is not biblical faith. So the first one, notitia. The second one is called ascensus. Ascensus, and that's A-S-S-E-N-S-U-S. Ascensus. It's where we get the word ascent. It's an embracing of the knowledge that you've gained as being true. Or you could say that it is affirming the truth. Wayne Grudem calls this an approval of the facts. It's taking that notitia or that knowledge and saying, yes, that knowledge is true. But is knowing the facts of Jesus and agreeing to those facts that they are indeed true, is that enough to comprise of saving faith in Christ? Well, we have the example of Nicodemus in John chapter 3 who comes to Jesus by night and he says, Rabbi, we know that you have come from God as a teacher, for no one can do these signs that you do unless God is with him. Nicodemus had concluded and agreed that Jesus was from God, but this was not enough to save him. James 2.19 gives us an even better example by telling us, you believe in, that God is one, you do well. The demons also believe and shudder. So to have an intellectual grasp of the facts of who Jesus is, and then to agree with those facts of the gospel, now gets you to the status of a demon. Satan knows that Jesus is the Son of God and what he has come to do, which is one reason why we see this flurry of demonic activity in the Gospels. But Satan is not going to be saved. So we have knowledge or notitia. And then we have the agreement with those facts or a census. But grasping a hold of those two items alone does not save you. But there's one more thing, and it's by far the most important aspect of faith, and that is fiducia. Fiducia, that's F-I-D-U-C-I-A. Fiducia is personal trust. The other two elements are cerebral, right? They're intellectual, but this aspect is more personal. Fiducia is a trust. It's the emotional act to, in, in your, of your will to depend upon Jesus Christ. It's where we get the legal term fiduciary. And in that sense, it's where assets like money or property is entrusted to someone else for somebody else's behalf. So say if a, um, a child's parents died, right, and they leave behind this large sum of money and property and all that sort of thing, the court would assign someone as a fiduciary to manage that money and that property for them until they could become mature enough to take care of it themselves. 
But in terms of trusting Jesus Christ, we are not depending upon ourselves or our good works, but we are trusting in him for our salvation. He alone possesses the grace and all the righteousness and all the mercy that we need to be able to stand in the presence of God. Louis Burkhoff said that fiducia is the surrendering of the soul as guilty and defiled to Christ and a reception and appropriation of Christ as the source of pardon and of spiritual life. Fiducia is an absolute trust or dependence upon Christ. It is to say to Christ that there is nothing in my hand I bring, simply to the cross I cling. It is to come to him for salvation. It is to to depend upon him for every good and perfect gift. It is to abide in him as he is the vine. So you can have all of the knowledge, you can be persuaded that those things are true, but you have to do something with it. You have to act upon it. You can look at a seatbelt in the car and you know that it's supposed to keep you safe, right? And you can believe that that seatbelt is engineered in such a way that it's going to stop you from smashing your face on a windshield. But unless you take that seatbelt across your lap and click it and buckle it, it won't do you any good. So having a belief that Jesus is the Son of God, that he was crucified for your sins, that he was buried and raised on the third day, and is now seated at the right hand of God and is making intercession for you, and you don't trust in his perfect righteousness and his substitutionary atonement for the salvation of your soul, Christ will do you absolutely no good. Trusting in Christ means that your confidence lies in him alone for your salvation. Trusting Christ means that you are depending on his righteousness and not your own. Trusting Christ means that you are sure your assurance lies in the one who has torn the veil in two and has satisfied God's righteous demands. It's an all-out utter dependence upon him because all things are from him and through him and to him. And this is where we find our disciples this morning. When Jesus tells them that it was because of the littleness of their faith, what he's meaning is that it wasn't because they didn't have enough knowledge or notitia. It wasn't because they didn't agree with that knowledge or a census. We heard them just declare that Jesus was the Christ of God back in verse 20. But the problem was is that they did not have a trust in him or a fiducia to cast out that demon. From their innermost being, they didn't look upon him or seek him to help them deliver this demon. Their confidence didn't reside in God. Because even if they would have had this littlest of this faith, the faith the size of a mustard seed, as Matthew 17 tells us, they would have been able to handle this possessed boy no problem. They would have been able to metaphorically move that mountain, or essentially what Jesus was saying to them in Matthew 17 about that, was that they would have been able to overcome a seemingly impossible obstacle. And it's very likely that as Jesus was up on the mountaintop giving Peter, John, and James a glimpse of his majestic glory, that the disciples down below could have thought to themselves, you know what, out of sight, out of mind, right? Or maybe they could have gotten a little bit uh, mechanical or a little ritualistic and thought, you know, if I just went through the same motions, I'm going to get the same results, right? But isn't this what we believers do on a week-to-week basis? Don't we honestly just come to church and we put on that game face 
And we just sing those songs, and we try not to follow the apostolic example too closely of falling asleep during the sermon, right? Don't we just sometimes just go through the motions of trying to read Scripture somewhat on a routine basis, have some devotions with our children on some sort of regularity, and then we seem to fall short again and again. When we read a book, then it has a quotation from Scripture to it in it. Do we not ourselves look at that and think, you know what, I already know that one, and you skip over it on a glance, you don't take the time to pause and reflect that that was actually the Word of God? Are not our hearts lukewarm towards God more times than not throughout the week, yet our lives on the outside, they seem to have this appearance of being proper, and they have appearance of being upright. You know, it's really, really easy for us to pick on these disciples, especially in passages like these, and play the armchair quarterback and what we would have done or not have done and, and all those types of things. But how many of us honestly can say that when we face seemingly impossible situations in our own lives, the first thing we do is seek the Lord? How many of us in this room can honestly say that when we're confronted with difficulties or trials or hardships, the first thing we do is we pray for the Lord's wisdom, mercies, and grace. I suspect that all of us are much more like these disciples than we would actually care to admit. But that's not how it's supposed to be, is it? Scripture repeatedly tells us that we are to live our lives and orient our hearts in such a way that God is at the very center of everything that we do. Proverbs 3, 5 through 6 says, Trust in the Lord with all your heart, and lean not on your own understanding. In all your ways, acknowledge Him, and He will make your path straight. 1 Corinthians 10, 31 says, Whether then you eat or drink or whatever you do, do all for the glory of God. Colossians 3.17, whatever you do in word or whatever you do in deed, do all in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, giving thanks through him to God the Father. Colossians 3.23, whatever you do, do your work heartily as for the Lord rather than men. And if you have to work for somebody, that's harder to do than you realize. Our work, our speech, our thoughts, our behavior, Our attitudes, our giving, and our hearts should all be oriented towards God to be as the being at the very center of every single thing we do. It's just like in Revelation chapter 4 when John, he looks up to heaven and the heavens are open and the door opens so he gets a glimpse of this great throne standing there in heaven. And he goes on, he describes what he sees and everything that he sees from the throne of heaven gets its orientation from that throne whether it's the angels or the, uh, the uh, 12 tribes or 24 elders that are standing there or the creatures that, that are there, all of them get their, their refer- reference point from that throne. And it's because of the one who sits on that throne. Everything we should do should be done as if we are standing in the very presence of God. Everything we do should be under the authority of God. Everything we should do is done in the strength of God. And everything we do should be done for the glory of God. 
And when you live your life in such a way as that, when it seems like the mountains are just standing in your way, and when the hardships come, and those trials come, and when the difficulties come, and believe me, they will come, God will show Himself stronger than you can ever imagine. God will demonstrate His unwavering faithfulness. God will be everything you need at that exact moment that you need it. Whether you're facing down a den of hungry lions, or whether you're facing the edge of a sword, Jesus will be enough if you just trust in Him. But this is the failure of the disciples. They had a lack of faith or trust in Him, and as a result, they could not cast out this demon. But in verse 42 of our text in Luke chapter 9 this morning, just in case that there was any doubt that this was a demon in this boy, Jesus tells the father, bring his son to him, and he says in verse 42, while he was still approaching, the demon slammed him to the ground, threw him into a convulsion, But Jesus rebuked the unclean spirit and healed the boy and gave him back to his father. Now, this is what boggles me about some commentators on this particular passage when they claim that this was simply epilepsy. (laughs) Because clearly, as the Holy One of God comes to him, the demon slams this kid to the ground in another attempt to harm him. But Jesus, in a display of his sovereign authority and his infinite competence, he merely rebukes the demon and it leaves the child wholly and completely and instantly and never returns to the boy again. Mark 9.25 tells us that Jesus said to the unclean spirit, You deaf and mute spirit, I command you, come out of him and do not enter him again. No more convulsions. Able to speak with his father, able to hear his father's voice in his right mind and with a restored body. What a demonstration of the compassion and mercy of Jesus Christ. The most compassionate and merciful person who ever walked the face of the earth. Can you imagine the absolute just tears of joy flowing down this father's cheeks? But this is also a demonstration of the heart of Jesus Christ. Not only does he have the power to heal the boy, but he gives him back to his father, demonstrating his compassion. Just like when in the uh, paralytic in Luke chapter 5, he forgives the paralytic after healing him. Not only did he heal that centurion's servant, but he also commended the centurion in Luke 7. Not only did he heal the woman who touched his garment, but then he comforts her in Luke chapter 8. Not only does he raise... Uh, from the dead, the daughter of Jairus, but he also sees to it that she gets something to eat in Luke chapter 8 as well. Infinitely powerful, supremely sovereign, and yet compassionate, tender-hearted, and abounding in loving kindness. This is Jesus. But can you imagine the astonishment of the crowd? Luke records for that, uh, that for us in verse 43. It says, and they were all amazed at the greatness of God. In absolute wonder at the majesty demonstrated before them, it says that they were amazed at the greatness of God. Now, this is a twofold statement here. On the one hand, the crowd is amazed at the miracle they had witnessed, right? And rightfully so. But on the other hand, it doesn't say that they were acknowledging Jesus as Messiah sent from God. Fascination with Jesus Christ is one thing. Submission to Him 
is yet quite another. And there are literally millions upon millions of people who have a fascination with Jesus Christ. And they attend church with somewhat regularity, but their lives don't reflect the rest of the week any submission to him. But as this crowd is astonished at this awesome display of power, and as it says in our text that everyone was marveling at all he was doing, Jesus draws in his disciples close, and he says to them in verse 44, Let these words sink into your ears, for the Son of Man is going to be delivered into the hands of men. Now this is the second time that Jesus is going to tell his disciples of his approaching death. And we have to look at this from the perspective that we are on this side of the cross. We're able to look back at the Gospels, right, as history. And then we have those epistles that explain that history. But the disciples are on the other side of the cross. And what were they dependent upon? The Old Testament, right? And I imagine we could probably try to look at Genesis 3 or Isaiah 53 and those sorts of things and sort of think, well, you know what? They should have known what he was talking about. But since we live on this side of the cross, we're able to understand passages like that in their fullness. We're able to look back from this side of the cross, and we're able to see how he has liberated us from the bondage of sin and delivered us from the fear of death and defeated Satan and so on and so forth. But every time Jesus spoke of his death, they denied believing it. When, when he would speak of being lifted up at the hands of men, this boggled their minds because to a, a Roman, you certainly would be lifted up. But as a Jew you would be cast down, usually by stoning, right? But they couldn't imagine their Messiah coming to die, and they surely could not imagine him coming to die at the hands of the Romans. And so, in the disciples' minds, the Messiah coming to suffer and die was unthinkable. Thinking about Jesus being a victim was unconscionable to them. But why would he constantly tell them that he is going to suffer and die at the hands of men? Why would he tell them again and again and again that he is going to die? Because he did it back in verse 22 of chapter 9. He did it here in verse 44 this morning. He's going to do it again in Luke chapter 11, 29 through 30, by telling them of the sign of Jonah. In Luke 12, 50, he's going to tell them that he has a baptism to undergo. In Luke 13, 32, he tells them that he must go to Jerusalem to meet his goal. In Luke 17, 25, he's going to tell them again that he must, be, must suffer and be rejected. And in Luke 18, 31 through 33, he'll take the 12 aside and he's going to tell them he's about to be killed. And so the question is, why? Why would he repeatedly tell them that he had to go and suffer and die at the hands of men? We have to answer that question with a question. What would have happened if the, to the disciples if Jesus did not tell them that he was going to be crucified? Can you imagine the bewilderment that they would have had if Jesus didn't tell them about his upcoming death? But he says to them, let these words sink into your ears, meaning pay attention to what I'm about to tell you. Listen up. Because one day, you're going to recall to mind everything that I've said to you. And then guess what? Your heart and your faith will be strengthened. 
One day, you're going to be on the other side of the cross, and you're going to turn this world upside down because you're going to be my witnesses throughout the ends of the earth. But at this point, they don't understand the fullness of this statement because it says in verse 45 that they did not understand the statement and it was concealed from them so that they would not perceive it. And they were afraid to ask him about this statement. Now, why was it concealed from them? Well, the text doesn't say here. But it's possible that John 16 might be the answer there for us because it says there in verse 7 that it was to the disciples' advantage that Jesus would go away because he would send the Holy Spirit. And the Holy Spirit would guide them into all truth. Truth about his death. Truth about his burial. Truth about his resurrection. Truth about his ascension and of his return. And so on this side of the cross, it may be concealed from them because they would not have been able to understand all of it. But someday they will. In Luke 24, 45, it says that he will open their minds about everything that's been revealed in the scriptures about him. And so he's going to tell them these things. It's really a future grace for them. It's really a a means of confirming a future hope because everything that he says to them is going to come to pass. Everything that he teaches them is going to be be completely true. And yet here we stand on this side of the cross. We ourselves here today with the promises that Jesus is going to come again. We have the confirmation of it in his word. We have the comfort of the Holy Spirit in our hearts. And we have the companionship of each other until that glorious day when he will return in all of his glory. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for the disciples, Lord. And although we can look at them and marvel and sometimes think, what in the world were you thinking? We have to remain understanding in the context of what they were given. And yet, today you have given us your Holy Spirit that indwells in within us. You have sealed it in our hearts. Our comforter, the one that guides us into all truth. And Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for the many provisions you have given us. Lord, we just pray that we might honor you. That as we go through our week, that we might have the faith and the trust in your faithfulness because of what you've said in your word. Just like Abraham was advanced in years, and as what he could see in terms of his wife and himself being old and elderly, Looking at those things by sight, he would be in bewilderment. But by faith, he knew that you had promised him a son. So Lord, today we pray that we would walk by faith and not by sight. Help us to not lean on our own understanding, but in all our ways acknowledge you. We thank you for this body, and we thank you for the provision of your son. It's in his name we pray. Amen.